Hey, good morning to you, okay? Good morning, if you're new. Hey, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here at Citadel Square. Picked a great day to join us. Uh, you'll find out why in just a minute. But if you grab your Bibles, go ahead and turn to right about the middle and find the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, where we've been here, we're coming up on the halfway point through this book. This book has somewhat of a seam right in the middle of it, right at the end of chapter 6. We'll start with that next week. Uh, but Solomon has been dealing with the world of uh, our lives, what he called underneath the sun. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. Let me say that. If you don't have one, take that. That's our gift to you. Uh, read it and uh, the rest of your life. And if it breaks, come back and get another one. We'll give you a Bible. Okay, that's out of the way. Um, Solomon has been dealing with uh, the world of work. Uh, last week, Solomon went to church. And we talked about what it meant for Solomon to say that there are a lot of foolish people who approach God in a lot of foolish ways. Uh, he's going to return to a topic that he's been dealing with really since chapter 2 this morning. And he's going to look at the world of work. And the, what he's done in the world of work and toil and effort under the sun has been to lift up some philosophies. And he's kind of sneaky in the way he does it, but he starts in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 saying, all the pleasure I had when I worked was the fact that I got the job done, but it really didn't give me any gain at the end of the day. And then at the end of chapter 2, he said, the reality is at the end of my life, I'm going to lose all control and all of the money and the gain and the wealth that I've made is going to have to be assigned to somebody else and I don't know whether or not they're going to be wise or foolish. I don't know whether or not they're going to steward it well or not. I am going to lose all control at the end of my life because death comes for us all. And then we had in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 the spot where he said, hey, some of us work too hard. It's better for you to have one handful of toil and one handful of quietness. And one of the things we said there about work is work has a tendency to blind us and to consume us because we're consistently working for toil. And he said, all of the work that man does is for envy of his neighbor, that I just want to get more than you and I'll use you however I need to so that I can get ahead and I can somehow finally have what you have and ultimately more than what you have so I can win. You've seen the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys still dies. Well, today, Solomon's going for the throat. If you thought that was hard in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and 4 and leading up to how he spent time in the presence of the Lord in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon is not going to mess around. He is going to go after. Yet you've seen him move. He's talked about work ethic. And then he talked about comparison. Now, we all have this heart of envy and desire that drives us. But today, he's going to get underneath it all and look at our loves. Solomon's going to address a topic that perhaps is one of the ones that's most uncomfortable for you to talk about. He's going to address a topic that Jesus, every time that Jesus talks about it, Jesus warns us about it as something to be on guard against. Solomon is going to address a topic that blinds us, that has a tendency for us to um, not see ourselves accurately as who we truly are. It's the thing that God warns the kings about in the Old Testament. It's what God warns his people about before they go into the promised land. 
Solomon is going to deal with the topic that craters the lives of characters in the Bible such as Demas, Ananias, and Sapphira, and Achan. Solomon is going to talk about money. And apart from the hard work and the work ethic and the comparison against one another, what he's going to talk about is the problem that we have in loving money. Now, this is a, a tricky topic to deal with in church. But the reason it's a tricky topic isn't because the biblical material is confusing. It's a tricky topic because we all love money. That's the problem. So that when you encounter texts in the scriptures on money, and there are, there, there's, a, gosh, so many. There's so many. When you encounter them, you immediately go on the defense. You do this, because I do this. I go, yeah, I don't do, I don't really struggle with that. I struggle with lots of other things, but ah, money's not my thing. That's somebody else. That's the rich people. The rich people really struggle with money. Tim Keller tells a story that during his ministry career, he did a teaching series for businessmen on the seven deadly sins. And as he was coming, the seven deadly sins are, you know, sloth and envy and lust and all, the, all of those things. Um, they made a movie about seven. Terrible movie. Don't watch that movie. Don't watch that movie. Uh, and his, he was talking to his wife, and he was preparing to teach um, the deadly sin of greed. And his wife said to him, that's going to be the least attended talk that you give throughout the whole course. And he said, no, I don't, I don't think that's the case. And sure enough, she was right, like all of our wives are. They are wise. And he discovered that the problem, here's what he says. He says this in his book on um, counterfeit gods. People packed it out for lust and wrath and even for pride, but nobody thinks they are greedy. As a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. And what you're going to see in this text here today is exactly what Tim Keller describes in this final sentence. Greed hides itself from the victim. The money God's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. Now, think for, we are in Charleston, South Carolina. We have a food and wine festival that happens right there. We have one of the premier golf courses in the nation where the PGA Championship is played. We have a massive tourism industry. We have uh, ed schools for advanced degrees that would guarantee that you can come out and make hundreds of thousands of dollars in the career that you prepare for. So this text in a city like Charleston that's one of the number one cities in America where you could come to retire is a radioactive text. So here's the question for Christ followers in Charleston, South Carolina in 2022. What would it look like if money didn't have our hearts? What particular gospel expression 
of the treasure of Jesus Christ to us would be displayed in our homes, in our city, in the place of center city where we exist now and preach the wonder of the fact that Jesus by his grace has sacrificed himself, has become poor, that we might become eternally rich. How would that reorient our church? And that's the question I want us to deal with with Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So let's pray, and it's going to be good. See how quiet it is in here? You can tell that's going to be a good message. Father in heaven, we uh, give thanks for the fact that Jesus has died for us to adopt us into your family. We give thanks that our identity is not in the things we have, but in the things that we have received because of what Jesus has done for us. We thank you that our sins are forgiven. We thank you that we will be presented one day pure and righteous before your throne without spot or blemish or any such thing. Father, as we come to a text like this that is uh, an exposing text, a text that cuts to the heart of many conversations that we don't want to say out loud, we pray for grace, we pray for wisdom, we pray that you would do heart surgery on us here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, you see that? Verse 8 is where we're going to be. And we're going to go, let me, let me, for you guys who are running slides for us, this text uh, does this. It's like it, it folds open. So what I'm going to do, it, the, the key to hope in the text like this is the very last paragraph in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And I'm going to skip it to start with. Okay, so I'm going to move from 5.8 to about 5.12. Then I'm going to go to 6.1 and to about 6.8. And then we're going to come back and look at the hope of the text. Because God puts the hope right in the middle so you can't miss it. It's the, it's the center idea of the text so that you might leave confident and hopeful and joyful and we don't just leave sad about love and money too much. How about that, okay? Look at 5.8 with me here. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and violation of justice and righteousness. Now that should ping your brain if you've been with us in Ecclesiastes up to this point. Because we've talked about those things in chapter 3 and chapter 4. In chapter 3 we talked about uh, that there was uh, wickedness in the place of righteousness. Where righteousness ought to be there was wickedness. Where there ought to have been justice there was injustice. And then we saw in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 there's oppression. That mankind oppresses each other. That we use each other. And now Solomon looks out in this province, in this place where he rules, and he says this, don't be amazed at the matter. Now, we live in a time where you can uh, get lots of clicks and lots of of views if you uh, create a YouTube channel dedicated to outrage where you create commentary on what is happening in the culture and in the financial sectors and in the government where you're just mad and lots of people will love it because lots of people feel like, I'm mad too. I'm frustrated too. And Solomon looks out on unrighteousness and oppression and injustice and he says, don't be surprised. Well, why not? For the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. Now, there's two ways to interpret this. There's a pot that commentators go both ways. If you look at verse 8, you'll have a little note in your Bible that says this is a hard verse to interpret. Or it's a hard, it's the Hebrew is uncertain. It says something like that. And it's really confusing. So you can take it one of two ways. I'm going to take it negative because it, it builds my case. You can take it positive. So let's just be honest. You know, 
there's two ways to look at this. There's one way to look at this in a positive way. That for us who feel, the, um, who feel a visceral tension when we see injustice and oppression and wickedness, we long for it to be different. And one, some commentators say that the, re, the way that that is handled in a society is through officials who keep watch of over officials to make sure that oppression doesn't happen at various levels, right? So that's the positive way. The other way to look at it is to say that the officials don't watch out for oppression, but that they watch out for each other. That there's systematic oppression of the poor. There's systematic injustices that happen. And for some reason, at the end of the day, what drives the machine of oppression, wickedness, and injustice is profit. So on one hand, positively, Bernie Madoff gets caught by the SEC and the IRS. On the other hand, you have stories of individuals and companies who will face bankruptcy, but the CEO gets away with a golden parachute. Don't that chap you? Don't that frustrate you? How does that happen? And the final one is verse 8 here. This is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So, on one hand, Solomon is at the top of the heap. Would you agree? If you read first, go read 1 Kings 4, and Solomon has princes who are uh, charged with providing food for his kingdom 12 different, one month a year. And their job is to come and to bring Solomon all of the fruits of the labor of the field. So either, again, positively, either you have a king at the top who if he leverages his position and wealth and influence for the good of his people, it will be good for everybody to have cultivated lands. Or, the negative, is that this king is at the top of the heap where all of the cultivation of the land ultimately benefits him. So you can go either way. I go toward the negative because what he's about to say next in verse 9. I'm sorry, verse, what did I say? 9, verse 10. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. So you see why on the heels of a system that is set up to perpetually abuse uh, the, the poor, to perpetually oppress those who can't speak up for themselves, the grind, the, the center of that motivation is verse 10, is the love of money. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Now, all the way through this text, all the way from chapter five and into chapter six, you're gonna see a lot of sensory language. Specifically two, you're gonna see sight and you're gonna see taste. And it starts here. That those who long for, those who dream about, those who desire to get rich will never ultimately be satisfied. They'll find a moving in their soul that no matter how much they make, no matter how many raises they have, they never get to a point of being satisfied. The cry of the heart that loves money is always and forever more. But they're never satisfied. It's somehow woven into toil and gain and money that it is not designed to be your satisfaction. Well, then why do so many people work so hard? Why is there so much information about having a side hustle? Because the toil and the drive of the individual who lives under the sun is making more. 
is achieving more, is accomplishing more. And he connects it, the satisfaction, to love, doesn't he? He takes affective desire and puts it with experiential satisfaction and says they don't connect, they don't work. This is also vanity. Now, you don't believe that, and I don't believe that either. I don't believe that verse. I believe more is better, right? Wouldn't you like to have more? If we gave out $100, our church would be full. See, you don't believe that verse. I don't believe that verse. I think there's lots of problems I could solve in my life right now if I had more. There's lots of things that I could do that could make my life better if I had more. So what Solomon is going to do is show you someone with massive net worth. Look at verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. Now this, I laughed out loud at this verse as I was studying this because I have six kids and I have lots of stuff in my garage and there's lots of stuff that my kids like to eat. They're like these roving band of locusts that no matter what they fall upon, they fall upon donuts, they're gone. They fall upon, they're gone, right? Taquitos are gone. Chicken nuggets, gone. What happened? How is there nothing dad didn't eat yet? Here's what he's saying. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. I, I, I redid the kitchen and I got to pay the contractor and I've got to pay the labor and then my business gets to a certain point and then I need marketing and then I need sales and then I need operations and I've got to meet payroll and I've got to pay a tax guy and I've got to make sure that now once I buy the second home, I've got to secure it somehow so I pay for security and then I pay for, you know, you fill in the blank, you keep going. I got to pay, I'm not going to mow that lawn, somebody else is going to mow that lawn and now I got to pay for the guy to mow the lawn and to keep it up to make sure it's weather stripping and it's caulked right and make sure the weather it doesn't get, no, I got to fix it and it's got to be done. I got to pay somebody to do that. Goods increase, they increase who eat them and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? What's the answer? See the question mark? There's no, there's no advantage. The idea is this, is you're just watching it go from this hand to this hand, and it's gone. From this hand to this hand, it's gone. Okay, I just, I can see it. I've created wealth. I've created gain. But all I seem to be doing is making it and handing it away. Making it and handing it away. I never, I can just enjoy it and, and see it, but it moves and it's gone. How about somebody with no net worth? Don't you remember times of having no net worth? Remember college, you'd call your parents and go, can I have $100? I'll, I'll sleep on the floor of the hotel. Me and five buddies in a Toyota Tercel. We're going to go and see. I mean, you lived it up, right? Ladies, maybe you didn't do that. Maybe that's just what guys did in college. You were like, take a shower. Like, we don't need them. We'll waste water. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. I used to do landscaping. I mean, I didn't have any money. I ran a, a mower. We would mow these houses that were enormous. And I would be exhausted at the end of the day. And my head, it hit the pillow, and my sleep was sweet. What'd you eat? Wendy's? Maybe. Addison, you with me? I'm talking about Sweet was the sleep of a laborer. You ever drive down the street and look at the landscapers and you go, ah, that life was good. Your life isn't like that now. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich won't let him sleep. He's always taking Tums. He's always checking the stocks app. 
He's trying to figure out, is it time to sell, time to buy? Man, real estate in Charleston's really good. Maybe now is the time to sell. Maybe we could leverage this house and get a bigger house. Maybe I can make some money and put some money away. Maybe I could make some plans and make some moves and make sure that I'm always always looking. Dividends and extra and more and I can't sleep and I got to get up early. The market's open early on the East Coast and I've got to get to it. Anxiety and nervous and toil and work and... Verse 13, there's a grievous evil. It gets worse that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Now, how would you describe the owner of the preceding verses who owned all this stuff? He's got an ulcer, but he's got a lot of stuff. That's the idea. His stuff has him. He doesn't own the stuff. He's owned by the things that he has. They reorient his heart. They reorient his conversation. They reorient his thoughts. They reorient his peace. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. It's not good for him. He can't handle it. Number 14, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. I took a risk. I had a sure thing. I put some money on this bet that I thought would come through and I would have more than I have today and now a shady business deal or a bad business venture ruins all of the capital that he's succeeded at amassing. Those riches were lost in a bad venture and he is father of a son. Remember the individual in in chapter four? That there's an individual working and toiling. He has no, it was his, say it again. He has himself and no other, no brother, no son. For for uh, and he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? And we said that wealth and this pursuit of work blinds us to any relationships in our life that we ought to be accountable to and responsible for. This individual, tell me what this family is like. What is the subtext in a family that is run on greed and wealth? How does this devastate a heart that is focused alone on money? When he gets to the end and he finds out that all of his investing and his time and his planning and his anxiety and his saving and his risk that he's taken financially is ultimately taken from him. I was planning to build generational wealth that I was leveraging my creativity and my financial wisdom so that my kids would have a better life than me. And he's got nothing in his hand for his son. Dad, are we rich? Not anymore. You've got no inheritance. There's nothing in my hand to give you. Verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came. And shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his what? In his hand. What did he hope to give to his son? What he had in his hand. What happened to the bad venture? It took everything out of his hand. Where does that leave him? The same way, remember Ecclesiastes chapter 1? A generation comes and a generation goes. Do you have a cross reference in your Bible right there? That says Job 1 you have that there? Flip back with me to Job 1. Let me show you. He, Solomon almost quotes Job verbatim in what he says there. 
Flip back, Proverbs, Psalms, go through that, and then hit Job chapter 1. Job begins with tragedy. It begins with Job losing. And what I want you to see is what Job says in Job 1 verse, 20, uh, 1, verse 21. Or look at verse uh, 20 together there with me. 120. Job loses. He has sons and daughters lost. He has uh, raiding parties come and, and steal and kill and destroy his family and his wealth. And verse 20 says this, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and what? He worshipped. Is that in your Bible? He what? He worshipped. You just experienced devastating financial and familial loss. Verse 21. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Turn back to Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon calls it, you see what he called it? A grievous evil. Job chapter 1 is worship. Well, so which is it? What has happened for Job to be able to worship and for Solomon to observe this individual who's built his life on the love of money to experience grievous evil? And the answer is the Lord. See, the Lord makes all the difference in times of loss. The Lord makes all the difference in times when our hopes are shattered in our financial wealth. You'll see that as we go on. Verse 16, back in Ecclesiastes. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? What's the answer? There is no gain. There is no gain. It's vanity. It's empty. It becomes a grievous evil when we presume that our security and our fortress is our wealth and not our Lord. Now, verse 17. Let's look at his... So this is pretty encouraging so far. Are you with me? You encouraged yet? Solomon is just painting a picture for you. Here's what life is like for this individual. Now he looks at the individual's inner life, his subjective experience of life. He looks at the woman or the man who's devoted to wealth. And he said, a bad venture can take it all away. And now he looks at, what is it like for this person to live their life? Look at verse 17. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness. Gosh. Which means he can't see straight. He can't see where he is in the ways that he eats. He has no light of wisdom to illumine how his life is going. He has no way of discerning what is right or wrong or why he is worshiping wealth the way he is. This is a great indicator for your relationship with wealth when you lose it. Are you angry? Is your inner life, when it comes to your financial well-being, characterized by bitterness, vex? Look at what he says. All his days he eats in darkness. Who wants to eat with this guy? Man, turn the lights on. 
in much vexation and sickness. Sickness of what? Sickness physically? He's got a sick heart. Not only that, he eats in anger. You know, um, there's a, a proverb. Proverbs 23 says this. You don't need to turn there. He says, don't eat the bread of a man who is stingy and don't desire his delicacies for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. It's where the, the phrase, as a man thinks, so he is, comes from. It's in the context of a rich guy who's stingy and hates giving what he has. And, and Solomon says in Proverbs, don't even eat with that guy. Don't sit down. It's not going to be a pleasant meal. You ever eat with somebody who's calculating the tip? And you just know, this isn't going to go good. They're going to want to tip 9%. You ever have that with people you know? Where the meal, you can't even enjoy the meal. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. And then Solomon says, you will vomit up the morsels you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. This meal will be a waste of time because of the hearts of people who are eating. Now, hang on, stay with me. It gets worse. Look at chapter six, verse one. We're gonna skip that little bitty paragraph. You wanna get there? I know, just hang on. Show some restraint. Look at six one. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor. What did God give to Solomon? I will not only give you wisdom, Solomon, I will give you wealth, possessions, honor, so that no one will be able to stand before you your entire life. You will be the most successful, rich, wealthy, influential, of high reputation, sought out for your wisdom king ever. And this evil that I have seen, it lies heavy. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. You know what the search for money, the love of money does? This is why you and I love money. Because ultimately what we want is really for all of our desires to be satisfied. Don't we want that? I really want to be in a place of independence and autonomy. I don't want to be accountable or responsible for anybody. I want what I want. Amen? It's just me. I want what I want. I want it when I want it. And I think more money would allow me to have the things when I want and what I want so that I can be independent and free. So that nobody can check me. Nobody can call me out. Listen, nobody at work is going to talk to you about the fact that the raise that you just got might be a dark temptation for your heart. No one is. Everybody's going to do this. Way to go. You hit the numbers. This is dangerous if we don't talk about it. Would you agree? If we don't talk about it in the church, who is going to talk about it out there? I'm not saying you got to sign up for telling everybody how much money you make, but if you don't have somebody that can examine the tendency in your heart to find your independence and autonomy through how much money you make, you are in a dangerous spiritual place. So that he has all that he desires. But what doesn't he have? 
Look at the end of the verse. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. Don't you hate that? God plays dirty. I don't care how much money you make. I am going to take away the satisfaction and enjoyment that you think money will give you. I'm going to remove it. So you make more, you get more hungry. You see more, you eat in darkness. Why? God knows our hearts are wired to run on pleasure. He knows that our hearts are wired to run on joy, that we are worshiping creatures. That's who we are. And he has created the human heart to run on himself. That's what he's done. So if you, Spurgeon said this, if you do not find joy in God, you will not find joy at all. God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. What an interesting picture that is. Here you have an individual who's, who has wealth, possessions, honor, reputation, influence, all of those things, and he watches somebody else who's just like him who can enjoy it. Isn't that interesting? That God creates a Petri dish. They still use Petri dishes? And you look into it and you see this individual who has everything he could possibly desire and he looks out of his, on the other side of the fence and he goes, that guy seems to enjoy life a lot more than I do. That guy seems to be able to live his life with a sense of contentment and joy that I don't have. This is vanity. It is a, what? Grievous evil. Verse three. If man, now... Uh, in the poetic literature, uh, typically, money and kids are the best blessings you can have. Watch this. Watch where he goes next. If a man fathers a hundred children, why would you want a hundred children? <laughs> that tells you how our values are switched, doesn't it? If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not what? Satisfied, literally his soul does not eat of life's good things. And he has no burial, I say, and this is perhaps the most stark analogy that Solomon gives in the book. He says that individual who's experienced the massive blessing of the people who eat them that he just talked about earlier, He's as bad, or he's worse than a stillborn child. Well, how? Look at verse 4. For it comes in vanity, the stillborn child, and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds what? Rest. What's that tell you about the individual who loves money? He won't be satisfied with money. That's what we've already said. His money will guarantee him no pleasure because God will take it away. He won't be able to enjoy it. And number three, he finds no what? He finds no rest. This has been the, the, uh, the mania that Solomon has showed us throughout this book. This toiling and working and drivenness. And I can't rest. I can't lie down. I can't take a break. I've got to keep going because now here in Ecclesiastes 5, I just love money too much. Verse 6, even though he should live a thousand years twice over. Do you see how extreme Solomon is? 
You have 100 kids and you live 2,000 years. Yet no enjoy, and yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to one place. You can have 100 kids and live 2,000 years, yet if you do not find your joy in God, death will take away everything that you've valued, everything that you have loved. Verse 7, all the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Don't you hate that? You wake up, you got to eat. It don't matter how much money you got to have. You still got to eat. I don't care if it's Wheaties or caviar. You still got to eat. Or like in my house, after breakfast, 20 minutes later, it's snack time. We keep working because we keep eating. The appetites are never satisfied. There's always time for snack. I don't care for 10 minutes from dinner. Can we have a snack? To hold you over for the next 15 minutes. Because his appetite is not satisfied. In context, what's the appetite? Wealth. His desire for money is never satisfied. All of his toil goes into his mouth, yet his, he's never, it's like perpetually eating uh, cotton candy. I'm never full, but it's very sweet. I'm never full. I'm never satisfied. It never meets the need that my body has. Verse 8, for what advantage has the wise man over the fool? This is great. And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? You remember back at the end of Ecclesiastes 4, you had a young, uh, poor, uh, uh, poor but wise youth and an old and foolish king who no longer took, uh, knew how to take advice. Remember that? Here, you have the same contrast happening again. But now the contrast isn't pulling you apart, it's uniting them. He gives you two different kinds of people. The wise, the foolish, the poor, and the living. And he tells you they're all united by the fact that their appetites are never satisfied. What advantage does wise have over poor if both have to eat and their appetites aren't satisfied? What advantage does, what did I say, wise and poor? Wise and the foolish. What advantage does the poor have before the rich when at the end of the day, the laborer sleeps well and the rich can't sleep a wink? They both have an appetite that cannot be satisfied by things of this world. And now my very favorite verse in this whole book is verse nine. This has been such a uh, stabilizing verse for me when I feel the temptation toward ambition when I feel the temptation toward hustle, when I feel the temptation toward more. Because let's be honest, just because you don't have money doesn't mean you don't love money. Right? Let's be honest with each other. That you can have no money and love money a lot, and you can have a, a lot of money and love money a little. And it all has to do with that compass in your heart. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. What did he say about the appetite throughout this passage? It's never satisfied. But better is what you see. Better is the life you have than the life you want, financially speaking. Now, for, now Solomon says this. The most wealthy and influential person in the history of the book says so what you see right now is better than what you want it to be. And specifically, he's talking about finance. He's talking about money. He's talking about that desire for more that drives us. 
which means that contentment is not a problem later. Contentment is a problem now. That contentment is something you can walk out of here today with and be okay with where God has you financially. You can authentically and honestly, because Christ is your treasure, be satisfied and joyful and content. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is a vanity and striving after wind. Now, are we ready for hope yet? Shake it off now. This is hard, this is hard work. Because this exposes all of us. This exposes the desires of, uh, that we don't even want to talk about with each other. With your closest friends, you don't want to talk about how much money you make and whether or not it's a temptation to your heart. Because it's so exposing for us. It's so vulnerable for us. It puts us in a position where we are like a raw nerve. Because we recognize how our hearts end up being tied to our stuff. Move back up to 5, verse 18. Let's find our answer. Now, he said grievous evil, evil, grievous evil, all over this passage. Here's the place where he talks about what is good. Look at verse 18. 5, verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in the toil, in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Enjoy it. Enjoy, the, remember last week we talked about uh, how much, raise your hand if you love your job. Go ahead. You love what you do. Do it well. Be excellent at it. But don't look to it to satisfy you. Enjoy the work that God has given you to do. Embrace it as something from the hand of God. See, one of the problems with our hearts is that we can have a tendency to, to put on the spectacles in our life, to, to look at life through these lenses, that life is fundamentally about what I earn, what I achieve, what I amass for me, rather than life is a gift from our Heavenly Father for us. And if you are able to take off the first and put on the second, then you will find now opportunities that God has given you to live. Anybody miss a meal this week? Anybody eat a steak? You did what I told you to do? Nobody? Nobody ate a steak? What are we doing here, people? Look at the verbs. Eat. Drink, find enjoyment, work hard, the few days of your life. You're going to get 2,000 years out of this life? No. You got a few days left. I don't know how many, if that's 100, if that's 3,000. But you've got an opportunity today to live and to walk in the life that God has given and provided and handed to you. For that is his lot. Look at verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to, there it is again, accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the, say it loud, gift. Do you believe that your life is handed to you by a good and heavenly father? Do you believe that he hasn't wasted these moments, that he has been your provider 
from before the day you were born and he will be the provider all the way to the end of your life when you step into eternity and receive riches that are unimaginable because of Jesus. That you've got an opportunity tomorrow morning, Monday, when you wake up and you go to work and you do the same thing that you've been doing where you're trying to make ends meet and make wealth and create opportunity for you to enjoy the life that God has given. You need to run out these unspoken temptations that you don't want to talk about, and you need Ecclesiastes, and I need Ecclesiastes so that I can see the unspoken philosophies that drive my emotional life, that drive my financial life, that drive my spiritual life, all of which are exposed in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. God knows us. He knows who we are. He knows how we struggle. And he invites us into experiencing contentment and joy. Do you believe that God wants to give you joy? Or do you think God left you here to work hard, be diligent, steward it, be grumpy, not sing that loud, and make sure I'm faithful all the way to the end? Solomon says, love your life, enjoy your life, work hard, receive the life and the great job that God has given you. Work hard. Don't make it your God. Don't make it the source of your your joy and your peace. Verse 20, I love this. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy and heart. What a picture of God like that. I've had so many moments with my kids that I didn't capture on camera. So many little moments where I've been able to just appreciate them for who they are and my life has been filled in so many ways because I've been occupied by receiving from God what he has given into my life. You hear me? You don't have to remember everything. What's the guy who's worried about money doing? He's always tinkering. She's always tallying. And do you see how much freedom is in this passage? He won't much remember his days because he's enjoying his life. He's having a steak. He's taking somebody out. He's buying somebody else's steak. He hit his numbers. He made the bonus. He treated the family for steak. Why steak such a thing? I don't know. It's my thing. You get your thing. Maybe it's, I don't know, you do pizza. I don't know what it is for you. I like a good steak. You got a minute? Let me show you this. I want to I end in this spot. Turn to 1 Timothy 6, and we'll close here. 1 Timothy 6. This is not a uh, purely an Old Testament idea. This is all over the New Testament. Like I said, Jesus warns us about money all the time. But let's try to answer for us as a church, just you and, I, you and me, just us together as we think about our church, Citadel Square, going into 2022 and to the years beyond. What would it look like for us to have Christ as the treasure of our heart in such a way that we didn't look to money to satisfy us? That every decision we made, we didn't put it in the profit and loss column. 1 Timothy 6. Paul warns Timothy about false teachers because one of the the surefire uh, way to look out for a false teacher is how they treat money. Ever heard of a false teacher who's got a jet? There you go. You heard it here. 
Look at verse 6. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Sound familiar? Job 1, Ecclesiastes 5. Uh, verse uh, 8. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be what? Content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation. It's the same word. Desire is the same word for lust. That you can lust for money. You can love money. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. They've shot themselves in the foot. They've inflicted upon themselves pain. Now, how do we leverage the money that God has given us? How do we begin to move away from this all-consuming desire to find our security and our hope and our, and our certainty and our desires met in money? Go down to the end of the chapter, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Have you ever asked somebody, hey, how do I come across? Now that's a pretty, God, that's a pretty vulnerable question. Do I come across arrogant? Do I come across as having it all together? Because the one thing that money does that we started with here is that money lies to us. It be, because listen, being poor exposes us, makes us feel vulnerable because we love money. Being rich makes us feel like we're more than who we are and we have a tendency to elevate ourselves over others. Charge the rich not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on what kind of riches? The uncertainty. How fast can they go like that? How fast can the market change like that? Who is unchanging? Your heavenly father. Don't put their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to what? To enjoy. Why does God give you stuff? This, is the, this bothers me. For people who end up getting money and then they're mad about it. They get money and they don't know how to spend it. What in the world did God give you money for? To be scared? Remember the parable of the talents? The guy who hides the talent in the dirt? And he goes, oh God, I brought it back, God. You glad? What's consistent about the other two individuals? They put their money to work. They took a risk. They spent some money. They're to do good. To be rich in what? Good works. Make your spiritual life the, t the tenor of your life, not your financial life. To be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Circle that word ready. Let me say this. You're never going to be prepared to examine what's happening in your heart when it comes to money if you are not ready. Do you have an ambition to be generous? And not just to avoid the sins that are real common. I know I shouldn't leave my wife. I shouldn't beat my kids. I don't do those things. But I'll, I'll, I'll kind of coddle this thing over here. The only way you're going to uproot the idolatry of greed in your heart is by losing money. That's the only way. Either God's going to take it from you or give you a lot of it and take away the joy. Or you're going to be able to steward it and send it on ahead. Look at what Paul says. 
be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the what? For the future. That you have a way to steward the money that you have now and put it in uh, what Jesus says. Store up your treasure not on earth but on heaven where moth nor rust destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Your sanctification as a believer has to include an examination of how you steward money. And it has to include an ambition for you to be so thankful for what Jesus has done in your life that you are ready and willing to share. That's how we know that money doesn't have us. That's how we know. Are you prepared to give money away? Do you keep cash on you to give to people in need? Do you listen to needs that are happening in the lives of people around you and think, I can, I can give them a certified check uh, in a way where they don't know where it comes from and I can meet a need because of the financial position God has put me in? Are you ready to share? Or you go, oh man, I don't know, I don't, I'm not ready. I'm doing all this stewardship back here, but I'm not ready to share. I'm not ready to leverage what God has given me for others. Imagine our church in this city that was so captured by the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ that we were ready to share. Can you imagine that? What a testimony in this city it would be that Jesus is so precious to us that we are liberal in our generosity. Can you imagine that? Wouldn't that be awesome? That's what I think Christ wants for us. That's what I think God wants for us is to give us this eternal, this is what we just sang, what we just read in Psalm 30, Psalm 90. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. That we might be a people who are rich in good works, ready to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Father, may this be true of us. Where we need to change, would you change us? Where we need to open our hands to the money that has a hold of our hearts, would you help us? Would we repent where we need to repent? Would we uh, ponder what it means to be ready to share, to be rich in good works, that we and our church and the men and women in this room might take hold of a life of joy? Would you free us from bitterness and fear and finding our security in worldly things? Would you remind us of the great treasure that you have provided for us in Jesus Christ? Father, we're so thankful what you have done for us in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. May we live lives that take hold of life indeed. In Jesus' name, amen.